Well, I want to begin our time together in the Word today by asking a, a simple, uh, straightforward, easy-to-answer question. And, and here's that question. How old is the earth? Okay, I lied. That's not a simple question. It is a question that's asked almost any time Genesis chapter 1 is read or mentioned. In preparation for this series, I sent out a question to a group of people, most of them from our congregation, some were friends of mine outside of our congregation, that I knew have thought about, have studied, or at least wrestled with this question to some degree. These were people that I knew would give some degree of thoughtful feedback. Every single person that I sent the question or the survey question to is someone who is in agreement with our church's understanding of the scriptures. They all affirm the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority of God's word. They're all people who would say that God's word is the final authority for faith and for life. And the answers that I received back were interesting. I asked the recipients to respond or to choose one of these answers. Perhaps most interesting is the fact that about a quarter of the people that I sent it to just ignored my email and never replied, which is a perfectly valid and understandable way to handle a question like this. But I did receive a lot of replies. Some were very confident in their answers. We have people here this morning who confess the same belief of the scriptures as you, who believe that the scriptures are inerrant and inspired who hold that the earth is less than 6,000 years old, and others who believe that the earth is billions of years old. So we're in mixed company this morning. Now I could, we have four sections, I could ask you all to stand up and pick a section that corresponds with your answer, make, force you to make a decision. I won't do that this morning, you'd probably fire me if I did. But this is an interesting question. And just to, uh, to be transparent, the results of the survey that came back were almost perfectly spread between the four answers. Of course, that creates a problem for the preacher this morning, because literally any way that I walk us through this text, someone could think that I'm either a fool or a heretic. So I want to begin our time today with the reminder from last Sunday. Uh, the Genesis chapter 1 is a revelation from our sovereign God who just simply was in the beginning. He exists outside of time, and he's revealing to us his intentional act of creation, and that our response should always be to read those words with humility, with gentleness. Because God's taking what we could never fathom on our own, what we could never comprehend in our limited minds, and he's bringing them into human language. I mentioned last week that God is relating something to us in about 30 verses. This idea that he created all things from nothing, that he designed all that exists in about 30 verses. Just for comparison... He took 45 verses to describe the clothing that the priests should wear into the tabernacle in Exodus. So this is not a detailed description. So we approach 
this passage humbly, recognizing the brevity of the account, recognizing that smart, biblically sound people that we love within our own congregation understand these verses differently. And it's in that spirit and with that heart and humility that I want to turn to our sermon text for today. It's a long one, so I'm going to let you stay seated this morning. I'll be reading uh, all of Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2. And as always, we remember that this is God's word to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let the lights be in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser night to govern the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray. God, may you grant wisdom as we consider your word today. Keep us faithful, thoughtful, and humble as we consider this beautiful revelation of your creative power. We worship you, the one true God who is over all, who is in all. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine this morning that you are out running errands. And when you arrive home, you walk into the kitchen and you find two eggs in a frying pan on the stove. Concerned that nobody is watching these two eggs frying in this pan, you yell out a question to your family. Why are these eggs frying? What responses might you receive to that question? Person A, who is a smart aleck, uh, might respond something like this. Well, the pan conducts heat, and so the heat from the burner travels through the pan and agitates the proteins in the egg. Eventually, the proteins are denatured as the egg white coagulates at 145 degrees. That's why the eggs are frying. And that'd be a correct answer, right? Another person in your family, however, might hear the question and respond, the eggs are frying because I'm hungry. Very different answers. Very different perspectives, both equally true. One answer speaks to the physical process, and one speaks to the intention and to the will of the one who caused the action. One of the major questions that we have to consider 
is which type of description do we find in Genesis chapter 1? Is God providing us with with an explanation of the, the physical process that powered the creation of the heavens and the earth, life and humanity, or is God providing the why? Is he providing the framework for understanding his intention and his will? Answering that question goes a long way toward defining what we expect from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And it's my contention that God, when he inspired these words in the heart and the mind of Moses, was focused much more on the second than he was on the first. These words exist to give us a a framework, a a rhythmic, poetic, well-ordered framework that leads us to see his purposeful, creative work. And, And not so much a detailed explanation of biology or geology or astronomy. So as I lead us on this journey through our scripture text for today, we're actually going to handle this text over several weeks, as you probably expected. Uh, Today, we're going to take sort of a high-level view of God's creative action and process through some of the the challenges that arise as we think about Genesis chapter 1 specifically. And then part 2 in our time in this text, we'll uh, look at the specific structure of Uh, Genesis chapter 1 of God's work days and examine what it says about creation. And then in the third part, we will utilize part of our text for today and part from chapter 2 as we talk specifically about God's special creation of humanity. So as we look at today's passage, I'm going to share with you one main point, two general observations And uh, think about nine clarifying statements. So one main point, two general observations, nine clarifying... It was ten this morning, but I paired it back to nine. Uh, Nine clarifying statements. Uh, So if you don't listen to anything else I say today, make sure you get this one main point. And that's that Genesis 1 teaches that God designed and created all that exists with purpose and order by his powerful word. Again, we'll come back to some of these themes in the weeks to come. We talk about more specific aspects of creation with a little more granularity, but but allow me to share two brief high-level observations about creation before we discuss some of the, the challenges and offer some clarifying statements. So observation number one, God created by his powerful word. Verses 1 through 3 of our text say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Hear that phrase, and God said. It serves as the active force in each and every act of creation that we see in our passage today at least eight times. uh, We see it God speaking and creative work taking place. The Psalms reiterate this idea. Psalm 33, for example, says, By the word of the Lord, 
the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God speaks and creation happens. This, of course, is is a much larger theological idea that's being established here. This is not just about creation. This word and declaration of God is the very foundation of our Christian faith. How does John chapter 1 speak of, uh, of Jesus in that beautiful passage that mirrors Genesis 1? I don't know if you've ever noticed that, that John 1 in many ways mirrors Genesis 1. John 1 begins this way, speaking of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John says, all things were made through him, so the Word is a him, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And of course, John will go on to reveal to us that the him, the word, the life, the light, is Jesus. We talked last week about our need to read Genesis Christocentrically, with Christ as the center. And John makes that clear, that Jesus is the word of God, the creative word uh, through which creation came into being. Paul, of course, reiterates that in Colossians as well. Uh, Or or think for a moment about how we come to have faith in the first place. How do we enter into relationship with God? Uh, Paul teaches in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So right away, this beautiful theological imagery in the midst of the creation account, it points us beyond just creation to salvation, God's powerful word, God created by his powerful word. Observation number two is this, that God reveals himself as the creator of everything that others worship. It's important to recognize that there were other creation stories in the ancient Near East. There were creation stories present before Moses put these words to paper in Genesis 1. This isn't the first story on the scene. And of course, the the setting in which Moses would have given this creation account is in the decades that follow Israel's exodus from Egypt. And in fact, some of those ancient Egyptian creation stories are preserved for us today. One of them is of the creator Ra. You might have heard of Ra. Uh, He has the head in the form of a falcon. He's the sun god. And those who followed this ancient creation myth in Egypt uh, believe that all life emanates from the sun god, from the sun. Uh, but, But that's the fascinating thing. God reveals himself as existing before anything was, before the sun. God reveals himself as the creator of the sun, the creator of the falcon, and anything else that people might choose to worship. Some other ancient cultures would worship a river as the ultimate source of life. Other things, uh, other cultures made, made sacrifices to a mountain god to keep the, god, keep the, the mountain from erupting as a volcano, and all of these things. All created things that human beings would go on to worship were created by the one true God. 
It's part of what Genesis 1 reveals to us. Okay, now I want to shift our, our focus and our discussion to a handful of the difficulties, the intricacies that we encounter when it comes to Genesis 1. And I probably could have had a list of about 25 or 30 uh, cl clarifying statements that I wanted to share today. I, I paired it back to nine that I think are, are helpful for us. Uh, and I want to present this in a, in a positive way. I, I don't want to just talk about difficulties or challenges, but, but so I use this language, clarifying statements, and I hope this is, this is helpful. The, the first one is this. The purpose of Genesis 1 is not to establish the age of the earth or even the time that it took for God to create the earth. Uh, in saying this, I'm not so interested in it being heard as a statement that we can't deduce the age of the universe or the age of the earth from scripture, but merely an acknowledgement that it isn't the purpose of Genesis 1. That's not why God has given us Genesis 1. I've already said that Genesis 1 exists to establish for us the fact that God designed and created all that exists with purpose and order by his powerful word. It's important to acknowledge what the purpose, what the intent of a passage of scripture is and what it isn't. And, and I would argue, and I think scripture supports this, that the intention of Genesis 1 isn't to deduce scientific answers. Uh, clarifying statement number two. There is no modern or historical consensus among Christian theologians about the age of the universe or the earth. I mentioned this earlier. There are people in this room today who have a high view of the scriptures, who uh, have very different views of the age of the earth, and that's representative of the church as a whole, how the church has approached this issue since the beginning, for millennia. There has, has never been a consensus uh, on these matters, and that's important for us to recognize because in our position, in our spot in history, most of what we have heard uh, has been related to there being a consensus, but let's uh, just acknowledge, and I'll talk about this more as we go, that that is uh, not the case. There has uh, never been and there is not currently a consensus about the age of the use, uh, universe or the earth. Clarifying statement number three. There are two dominant views among theologians and among Christian scholars who work in biology, geology, and astronomy. Uh, and I laid out uh, just quickly for you uh, those two dominant views. The first one, I think we all have heard, uh, is those who interpret Genesis 1 as speaking of actual 24-hour days. The second dominant view is those who understand the days of Genesis 1 as figurative or as literary expressions. I think most of us have a pretty firm grasp on the first position. It's been uh, what we might say is the dominant view of popular Christianity, at least, uh, in recent memory. And, and, and why is that? And, and I think, to be fair, uh, it is partly due to good marketing. Uh, there have been a number of books, resources, even vacation experiences marketed on the premise that if the universe was, uh, wasn't created in six literal 24-hour days, then the entirety of the Christian faith collapses. Uh, so some of the prevalence of this has just been good marketing. Uh, but I think it's, it's important to recognize that throughout history, there's been an acceptance of diversity of thought 
regarding the proper reading of Genesis 1. And I'll share several quick examples that I think are helpful. The, the first is this. I want to look at some examples from the early church. Uh, so the first, let's say, four centuries of Christianity. Uh, there was great diversity in uh, the first uh, several centuries of our Christian faith. You could point to a number of, uh, of church fathers uh, like Lactantius, uh, probably not a name you're familiar with, but if you read uh, anything from that era, you'll see his name. Uh, Victorinus, Ephraim the Syrian, Basil, they were all basically, uh, they all basically held a 24-hour uh, day view. But at the same time, their colleagues, men like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Ambrose, Augustine, Hilary, Philo, uh, early church fathers, all held to some type of more allegorical or figurative understanding of those six days in Genesis. If you've done any reading on uh, the, the early years of the church, those, that collection of names, uh, those are some, some heavyweights in church history. So there's always been diversity of thought throughout the history of the church on how we properly read Genesis 1. Uh, to complicate matters more, uh, some of the guys that I mentioned changed their positions over time. So they, uh, no pun intended, evolved uh, in their uh, view of, uh, of the creation account in Genesis 1. If we were to, to narrow the focus to, to one guy that most of us have probably heard of, at least, uh, Augustine. Uh, he, Augustine's view was interesting. He wrote about it extensively. If you've ever encountered his work, The City of God, he he tackles this question head-on in, in that writing. Uh, he, he said it's, it's sort of silly to demand a six-literal-day creation when God is obviously so powerful that the whole thing would have happened in an instant. And so he's, he held the position that those six days were given for theological reasons, reaffirming the value of the seven-day rhythm of life in the believer, the seventh day being blessed and holy. He wrote about it extensively. Fast forward about a thousand years, Martin Luther, another guy we're familiar with, Luther held a, a, a fairly rigid position that, uh, that, that Genesis 1 speaks of literal 24-hour days. Fast forward a little farther, the early 1900s in, into uh, American church history. Early 1900s were a very formative time in American evangelicalism, at least. And one of the most important movements during that time, I'm sure you've heard of, it, it, it's taken on sort of a negative connotation, was uh, what we call fundamentalism. Uh, a strong emphasis on the word of God and on the fundamentals, the basics of the Christian faith. It really gave rise to the explosion of evangelicalism in America. B.B. Uh, Warfield is probably a name that some of you are familiar with. Uh, Warfield was credited as probably one of the most influential uh, theologians of the 20th century. In America, and, and Warfield expressly rejected a 24-hour view of creation. Uh, some of you are familiar with another guy who was significant in that era. Uh, he, was a, a, he lived at the same time as Warfield, a guy by the name of C.I. Schofield. Uh, he, he wrote or he published the Schofield Study Bible or Schofield Reference Bible, probably the best-selling study Bible in the history of the church. Uh, came out in 1909, took the nation by storm. Uh, basically, any, any Christian with means in the early part of the 20th century had a Schofield study Bible. 
Uh, and many theologians credit Schofield for changing the American church. Uh, he, his, his writing specifically on the end times, on how we view eschatology, changed uh, American evangelicalism. Uh, it was an incredibly popular Bible, and the Schofield Study Bible uh, taught an old earth view of Genesis 1. Surprising to a lot of people. And then, of course, in the modern era, there are many uh, pastors, if you dig beneath the surface of sort of pop Christianity, uh, there are many, many modern era pastors, theologians, philosophers, scientists on every side of this conversation. I, I don't give you these examples to, to influence you one way or another, but just to uh, help you see that there's always been diversity throughout the history of the church on how we view Genesis 1. And that leads me to my fourth clarifying statement. And that's this, that the Bible uh, does not demand a 24-hour day view. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just I'll be fairly brief here. Uh, there is freedom and room in the church today for a variety of viewpoints on this issue. There always has been, and there is today. I uh, have and continue to strongly reject teaching uh, that either view of Genesis 1 is required for the rest of Scripture to remain intact. Uh, it's simply adding to the gospel, things that Scripture doesn't add to the gospel. Uh, many young people, and I've talked with some of them, have walked away from their faith because they were forced by somebody to decide between what they observed with their eyes and what their pastor, Sunday school teacher, or parent insisted that they must believe about Genesis 1. If we insist that one believe a literal 24-hour day view when Scripture does not insist that, we are Pharisees. Adding requirements, placing hurdles in the road as people are on their way toward the kingdom. And there is nobody more harshly criticized by the Savior himself than those who placed hurdles in the pathway of people on their way toward the kingdom. The, the demand of Scripture, I believe, is that uh, we must believe that God is the creator, not necessarily affirm a specific time frame in which he created. Clarifying statement number five. The simplest and most natural reading of Genesis 1 is the 24-hour day perspective. This is not to say that the simple reading of Scripture, I think we know this, the simple reading of Scripture isn't always the correct one, but this is important to recognize. We give a fair, when you're interpreting Scripture, you give a fair amount of deference uh, to the, the most simple, the most natural way that we would read a passage. And so I think it's important to note here that, that I would argue that the, the simplest way to read Genesis 1, the most natural reading of the text, lines up with a 24-hour day view. Statement number six. Genesis 1 contains significant imagery and rhythm and is poetical in nature. I'm not saying that, don't mistake me, I'm not saying that Genesis 1 is poetry. What I am saying is that it has some traits, some characteristics that are typically found in poetry. And I think you've seen that. The, the rhythm, the repetition, 
This is important for us to note as we read these texts. And God said, repeated rhythmically throughout the chapter, the continual refrain of, and there was evening and morning. This is an important observation because it tells us that we probably don't read Genesis 1, if we're going to be faithful, like we would read very linear history. These are clues that should cause our ears to perk up and say, maybe there's something special about this text that would cause us to handle it a little bit differently. Some have referred to Genesis chapter 1 as exalted prose. So not quite on the level of poetry, but, but more uh, traits of poetry uh, than the typical historical narrative. Uh, perhaps the greatest example of symbolism found in uh, in this passage it actually occurs in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, in that seventh day. Listen to what the scriptures say. It says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now just think about what's happening in these verses. Even uh, the most hard-nosed literalist would admit that this is figurative language, right? The the all-powerful, sovereign, eternal creator of the universe simply doesn't need to rest. These verses demand a, a, a bit of a figurative approach. Because to proclaim them literally, for me to stand here and teach God needed to rest, that's blasphemy, right? God certainly, God doesn't need anything. And he certainly doesn't get tired. He doesn't wear out. It's metaphorical language. And so we see that uh, right in the creation account. It's important for us to to recognize those things, that they are found in this account. And that brings us to our next clarifying statement. And that's that any language revealing God's action is accommodated language. What do I mean by accommodated language? Here's an example. In the last uh, 10 days, I've had a meeting with the theological committee that interviews uh, pastoral applicants. I've led a men's Bible study. I've taught a confirmation class to middle schoolers. And I led our Bible story at Awana. Think of those four different settings. Uh, Some of the topics that I discussed, for example, in my meeting with fellow pastors interviewing a pastoral candidate uh, were the same topics that we discussed at Awana. But the language that I use to to relate what I'm teaching or what I'm talking about in those different settings is, is very different. I accommodate my language to these individual Settings, And that's exactly what, uh, what God does for us in his word. He relates truth to us in accommodated language. He makes accommodations in his language uh, for us. An example might be Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. God tells Moses to, to say to the Israelites that he will redeem them with an outstretched arm. Well, we know that God is spirit, right? We know that God... The father doesn't literally have an arm uh, with which he's going to uh, redeem his people. And so we know that this is metaphorical language. This is anthropomorphical language. Jot that down. Spell it right, too. Uh, 
this is language that he, he's using to accommodate what he's trying to say to us as human beings. God doesn't literally have an arm. Or we could think about that ironic blessing that I give at the end of almost every service, Numbers 6, where it speaks of God's face shining on us. Again, we know that God, is, God doesn't literally have a face. Scripture tells us that elsewhere. But God's revealing himself. He's revealing how he acts, how he works, his relationship to us and with us in accommodated lang- in language that we can grab onto, that we can believe, that we can understand. And so any language uh, revealing God's action is always accommodated language. Clarifying statement number eight. Uh, this one is probably the most controversial today, and that's uh, simply that much of uh, the young earth creation science that exists is, uh, for many of us, unconvincing. I won't say much about this. People get super territorial over these things, and that's fine. Uh, but I'll just say that there are many devout Christians And many devout Christian scientists with advanced degrees in these areas of of study who find the arguments made by uh, many of the most well-known creation scientists to be incomplete, to be insufficient. It's important that if we're going to read and and follow one set of Christian scientists that we take time to read opposing viewpoints. That's good scholarly work. That's good critical thinking that we view we, we hear arguments from all sides. Just be aware that there are many uh, Christians in these fields who, who don't talk about their position in church because it's not worth the hassle and the controversy. Uh, I've talked with physicians. I've talked with uh, college professors who have a high view of God's word uh, who just choose to stay out of the conversation because it's not worth disunity. Clarifying point number nine. We live by faith, not by sight. Scripture teaches that true saving faith in Christ does not come from seeing everything clearly. Resolute faith, strong faith is not a product of being able to answer every question. In fact, there's great theological risk in trying to explain each and every mystery. We we all have a tendency to try to solve mystery, to relieve the pressure, the dissonance that we feel. We like to tie things up into a nice little palatable package. But that isn't the Christian faith. Faith is by very definition, by the definition of faith that Scripture gives us in Hebrews chapter 11... Faith is having assurance about what we cannot see with our eyes. So I want to go back to where we started today. With that one big idea. And that's this. The Genesis 1 teaches that God designed and created all that exists with purpose and order by his powerful word. And as we will see in the coming weeks, the ultimate purpose of Genesis 1 is that we might see our sin. That we might turn to the one who came 
to die for our sin, that we might embrace the firstborn over all creation, that we might receive the gift of eternal life that he offers. In other words, Genesis 1 serves a purpose. Genesis 1 serves to set up the story of redemption. The story that Jesus came to die for you. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we worship you, almighty creator of heaven and earth. We pray that you would give us humility as we think about matters that are too immense for us to understand. Give us gentleness, give us mercy, give us love, give us grace as we interpret, as we apply these passages that are challenging. Lord, we thank you that you designed and created all that exists with purpose and with order by your powerful word. We thank you that you created each of us, that you created each person that we will encounter this week with purpose, with value, Lord, we believe that you could have created the vast universe in the blink of an eye. And we know that you also could have utilized complex processes that you designed that take much time because to you, time is irrelevant. And so we simply respond today in in worship, in praise to you for your power and your glory and your creative genius. And we believe, even though we cannot see perfectly. So strengthen our faith this week. Give us a deeper love for your word. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to live and die for us. Amen.